book of Psalms. How many love the book of Psalms? Amen? Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalms 126. And I uh, was doing some reading and praying this week, and uh, the Lord laid on my heart, I, I might start a new series here, a mini-series from Psalms 120 to 134. Those are called the Psalms of Ascent. I'll say more about that later. But uh, we're going to look at Psalms 126 tonight. It's a precious psalm. You're familiar with it if you've been around the Bible. And I want it to be a blessing to you. Psalms 126. Now, do like we do Sunday mornings. If your neighbor next to you doesn't have a King James Version of the Bible or lacks an Old, an Old Testament, please share your Bible with them. Always look around you. If somebody doesn't have a Bible, find a Bible and, and, and do that there. And, uh, and then look at it tonight. And you'd have to have the King James Version. Otherwise, you won't have a right translation. Amen? You need to have the right translation there. Psalms 126. Say amen if you're there. Amen. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Amen. Whereof we were glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Invariably, most of you who've been around church are familiar with verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bring his sheaves home. Those are soul winners' verses, amen? Those are promises, guaranteed promises to the soul winner. If you get any of Charles Spurgeon's works, he's preached much on those verses. If you get anything for Dr. John R. Rice, John R. John R. Rice took those verses and elevated those verses and made them pressing verses for soul winners. You need to claim those verses when, when, you, when, you, when you go soul winning, when you pray. But you have to take those verses. You can't just extract those verses, and, the, and you can, and preach on them. But you've got to take those verses in, 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 in context of the whole chapter, where the psalmist is coming from. And we're, we're going to do a Bible study tonight. Sharpen your pens. Sharpen or fill your cartridges up. Sharpen your pencils. Get some paper out. And we're going to see tonight just something off the pages here. They're going to speak to us. Now, draw your attention this evening as we, we, we try to look at what God wants us to see. I draw your attention to verse 1. And he says, we were like them that dream. Do you dream? I dream, but I don't remember my dreams. That's probably a good thing, amen? I can't remember a thing about any dreams I have. A lady had a dream, and it was near her anniversary, and she told her husband, she said, you know, I had a dream last night that you were going to give me an expensive pearl necklace. What do you think that means? He said, I'll tell you tonight. And she got all excited. She said, oh, he, re he remembers our anniversary. He's going to give me a pearl necklace. He gave her a package. It was all wrapped up. She opened the package. Inside the package was a book. And the title of the book is The Meaning of Dreams. Okay, not exactly what she wanted, but she, you know. But tonight, tonight, you, tonight you need to have a dream for your life. God gave Joseph a dream. These people here had been in captivity for many years. They came back and said, we were like them, the dream. I'm going to preach your message tonight entitled, Living the Dream. Living the Dream. Catch it tonight. 
Catch what the dream God has for your life. Father, we ask this evening, as we've sung, as we've heard testimonies, now, Lord, we need to be preached to. I pray that you break up the fallow ground of our hearts. I pray that our, our hearts would be good soil, ready to receive the engrafted word, which is able to save souls. We pray this evening that, God, you'll help me to speak as it be the oracles of God. And I thank you, Lord, for the folks here tonight. This is the committed core of Heritage Baptist Church. People that love your word and love you, they would not come back on a Sunday late afternoon or early evening if it were not for the fact they loved you. And God, I pray tonight that, and I know, Lord, some here tonight because we couldn't be here Sunday morning for various reasons, but tonight, Lord, feed our souls, I pray, and you'll help me. My, I need help from above. I need strength, Lord, to feed the flock of God, which is among us. And we pray this evening that the Holy Spirit would just give illumination to speak to our hearts from this beautiful series of Psalms that is given to us, from Psalms 120 to Psalms 134. God, encourage our hearts and lord at the same time i pray you put a fire under us and help us to grasp the meaning behind this and we'll thank you for this in jesus name and all god's people say amen okay you may be seated psalms 126 is category is in the category of what we call the psalms of ascent the psalms of ascent are psalms 120 to 134 about 14 15 psalms it is said that the the jewish the jews when they walked up the hill of jerusalem to the city of Jerusalem, because it was the city on the hill, they would recite these psalms. The Jews had memorized these psalms. The priests, when they walked up the temple steps, they would go on step one, and they would recite Psalms 120. They'd take a step up, they'd go to Psalms 121. They'd step up to another step, they'd quote Psalms 122. They would quote these psalms as they went up. Incredible dedication. And they called them the Psalms of Ascent because as they were making their progress their way upward, they were thinking about these psalms and what they meant. Four of these psalms are attributed to King David. Psalms 122, Psalms 124, Psalms 131, and Psalms 133. Uh, psalms 127, which we're very familiar with, which is a, a family psalm and goes with Psalms 128 and 129. Uh, psalms 127 they, is ascribed to Solomon as having penned them. The remainder of those psalms, the other psalms, are either penned by Hezekiah or penned by, the, by perhaps the sons of Asaph. And uh, after the captivity time, we're not really sure, but some believe it could be either one of those. Regardless of what it was, these were, these were psalms that were very meaningful. They were patriotic psalms. They were pilgrimage psalms that the, that the Jews sang. Notice Psalms 126. This is the seventh of these, these songs. And it has, in just in six verses, there's just so many wonderful things that we find here. Notice in verse 1, he talks about the, the people, their captivity is turned. We'll, we'll look at that a little bit later there. He talks about the fact, he says, our mouth was filled with laughter. He says, uh, the Lord has done great things for us. And he talked about how the people on the outside, the Gentiles, or as they call them, the heathen, the nations surrounding them. And I think those were the Syrians, and I believe those were the, uh, the, the Philistines, and uh, I believe that those were perhaps the Abonites and, and the Edomites and people around them. They were, the testimony they had was, the Lord's done great things for them. By the way, that's a good thing. When God's people are thriving and God, God's church is on fire and things are happening, it's a good thing when people know that God's done some great things for us. Amen? And they need to give God the glory for that. But even more so is found in verse 3, when the people themselves said, the Lord has done great things for us us where we were glad and then he talks again about this captivity and then he talked about sowing in tears and then again he goes to verse 6 he talked about bearing precious seed and coming back with rejoicing but my focus tonight is kind of the crux we're going to build the message around tonight is verse 1 
He says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dreamed. They, these were people, as we get to the end of this chapter, these were people living the dream. They were living a dream. It was beyond their, their capability of understanding of all that God could do. They were living a dream. Can I tell you tonight, there is something God wants to do in our lives. And I'm not talking a Joel Austin you know, type, type of thing. I'm saying there's something God wants to do with your life that would live out the dream. The Bible said, it says, God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The Bible tells us in, in Philippians 1.6 that God is working in us and he's going to continue to do a good work in our hearts until the day of Jesus Christ. And so tonight I want us to see about this matter of living the dream. Notice number one in verses one to three, we see a people rejoicing. A people rejoicing. Uh, notice it talks about here the people that were in this captivity. It's a very troubling phrase. He says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. To understand a people rejoicing, we must understand the punitive reason. Why do people go in captivity? Why were these people in captivity? What does captivity mean? He says, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. Zion was a name that pictured heaven. Zion was a name, another name that described the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Zion was known as the city on a hill. We first read about Zion when David went to that city and he took it and he conquered the city. When he conquered, it was called the stronghold of Zion. Nobody else, everyone before David, all his predecessors, failed in claiming that city. But David went in with his men and they claimed that city. When he took it, they renamed it the city of David. When you think about Zion, you think about heaven. When you think about Zion, you think about Jerusalem. Jerusalem means the city of peace. Zion means this, a sunny mountain. It was given that name by David. It was given the name by somebody as a sunny mountain. Perhaps when David took it, it signified that God made his face to shine upon Zion. Captivity in this case, though, the city had become captive. The city, which once a stronghold, became a cap was captured by its foes. Now, it, it, uh, captivity means the prisoner of a foreign power. If this psalm was written by King Hezekiah, it may have been written on his reflection of 200,000 of their people that had been taken captive by the king of Israel and were led out the city. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles 28, verses 5 to 8. 200,000 people were taken captive. King Ahaz at that was the king at that time. That was the father of King Hezekiah. King Ahaz was a terrible king. He was a bad king. He, he defiled the temple. He brought pig, pig's blood into there. He defiled the place. He brought abominable things inside of there. Uh, King Ahaz shut up the house of God. They closed the doors up and it took them many days to clean out the house of God later on through Hezekiah. Hezekiah may have been reflecting, if he wrote this, he may have been reflecting on those 200,000 people that had been taken captive and later returned. The likelihood it was written by one of the sons of Asaph many years later and this could have been during the time of after Nehemiah or the time of Ezra. If it was written by a son of Asaph, it was a reflection of the, kept, of, the, of the remnant of Israel that came back out of the land of Babylon after having been there for 70 years. 70 years being out of your homeland is a long time. 70 years away is a very, very long time. And it reflects these people coming back into the land, the land there of, of, of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And they're making their way there. So the people, of course, are recognizing the Lord was the one that turned it again. Now, captivity means that we are in bondage. Captivity means that someone else, a foreign power, has control of us. Well, I wonder this evening as we start this message, and we think of the punitive reason. I wonder tonight if any of us have to stop for just a moment when we read this verse and wonder this evening, am I a prisoner of some type of captivity? 
Is there something holding my mind bondage? Do I have sinful thoughts? Do I have, do I have some emotional upheaval in my life that's holding me captive? Is there some addictive behavior that is controlling me? Is there a root of bitterness that's controlling me or grudge that I cannot let go? Is there a conflict going on somewhere that's holding me captive? Am I being held captive by fear? Am I being held captive by worry or by anxiety? What could it be? But the Bible says here tonight that the punitive reason why they were captives was because of some sin they had done. But notice we not only see a punitive reason, we see a powerful release in verses 1 and 2. I'm thankful God doesn't leave us dwelling on the problem. God helps us to see that God was involved in getting them out of that. Amen? And the Bible says here we see a powerful release. It was the Lord that turned again the captivity. The Lord turned again. God gave the release. God set them free. God gave them liberty. It's almost like the story there found in Mark chapter 9 of the man who had a demon-possessed son. You remember the story there that the disciples, uh, there were three of the disciples had gone with Jesus up on top of a mountain and he went there to teach them to pray. And there Jesus was transfigured and they were just you know they were overcome by that transfiguration and didn't really know what to say and Peter of course he spoke off the top of his head he said Lord it's good we're here let's make a tabernacle for you one for Moses and one for Elijah and then God the Father thundered with his voice from heaven he said this is my beloved son hear him and of course Peter had to retract everything he said because he knew he was in trouble they came back down the hill as they did so he saw the remainder of the disciples embroiled in discussion with a family and a bunch of people around that and Jesus walked up and said what's the problem here and they said well basically this man said I brought my son to your disciples but they could not help my son and uh, they didn't they didn't have the power to help this demon possessed son and the man went on to explain to Jesus with tears flowing down his eyes and a quivering voice that his son had been demon possessed for a long period of time and Jesus asked the man the question he said how long has your son been that way he said ever since a youth ever since a little child can you imagine a chest from a child this kid was overcome with demons that that threw him into the fire and threw him into the water. These demons tried to kill this boy. They created just a very, very harmful situation in that home. This was captivity. And so we see this, these people here, they're held captive by a foreign power, by the Babylonian government, but God set them free. Hey, I'm glad tonight we can get a powerful release from Christ. Amen? Now, I remind you today, if you have some kind of captivity, some kind of bondage you're under, bondage is broken by prayer and by fasting. Bondage is broken by confessing and forsaking our sin. Listen, you're not going to get out of the bondage of bitterness, and you're not going to get out of a bondage of a conflict. You're not going to get out of a bondage of unforgiveness, and you're not going to get out of a bondage of sinful thinking, and you're not going to get out of the bondage and the addiction of, of, of a bad behavior like pornography or something that needs. You're not going to get out of them unless there's prayer and there's fasting, unless there's confessing of sin and forsaking of sin. We see a powerful release that the Lord gives them. But notice, if you would, this evening, we go a little bit further and we see a pleased response. They said our mouth was filled with laughter. Do you laugh? Do you enjoy laughing? Do you enjoy how the, when you laugh, how it lets off some, those, those chemicals in your brain and, and in your body that releases tension? The very heart doeth good, the Bible says like a medicine? Do you laugh? Do you get excited about people getting saved? Amen. You get excited about prayers being answered? You get excited about coming to church? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Do you get happy about serving Jesus? We just talked about that this morning. You get happy about preaching? Amen. You get happy about Jesus? You get happy about the fact Jesus is coming again? Come on, get happy tonight. Amen. 
Have some laughter tonight about what Jesus is doing, amen? They said, then was our mouth filled with laughter. Where was the laughter the other 70 years? I mean, they waited 70 years, and it wasn't until God broke the bondage and God broke the chain that they got this laughter inside of them. They said, then was our mouth filled with laughter. Each day when the sun rises over the Washington, D.C., its first rays are reflected on the eastern side of the 555-foot Washington Monument. Amazingly, as the sun sets its course and rising from the eastern side there on the eastern side of that monument, it reflects itself. And if you look very carefully at the top, in Latin, there's, the, there's a word in Latin that says, Laus Deo. Laus Deo means praise be to God. And whoever it was that erected that monument wanted to be known that praise needs to be given to God. Hey, I'm thankful somebody built a building. He says, let God get the glory, amen. God put, someone put a monument, and that monument is kind of interesting. It's pointing upward like a cedar of Lebanon. It's pointing upwards to God. Listen, we ought to point upwards to God and give God the glory, amen. Praise be to God. Hey, then was our mouth filled with laughter, and our, and our voices are filled with singing, our tongues with singing. They were excited. And then they said the heathen around them, the Babylonians, and perhaps the Persians now, and others were reflecting on the fact the Lord has done great things for them. Hey, they, listen, pe people around you should not see a Christian who's miserable, a Christian who's always in the down, a Christian who's always in the dark, a Christian who's always complaining, a Christian who's always discouraged, never has anything to say, has nothing to talk about Jesus, they should never see us complaining and all those kind of things. They ought to be able to look at that Christian and say, the Lord has done great things for them. And then they got to the place where they said, hey, the Lord has done great things for us. Their release was a dream come true. Their release was for 70 years. They had been down there in Babylon land. They had been there under a foreign power, but God set them free. And they made their way into Zion. They made their way back to the city of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. And they got there and they said, oh, we're like them that dream. We can't believe it. We're back here again. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Hey, tonight there was a people that were glad for what God was doing in their life. Hey, does this describe your spirit and my spirit about the Lord Jesus Christ? That you got the joy of the Lord in your life. You're happy all the time in Jesus Christ. Does your spirit reflect tonight your fellowship with God? Does your spirit tonight as a church member and say, the Lord has done great things for us. Amen. We see a people rejoicing, but notice number two, we see a pressing request. Oh, these people are filled with laughter and their voice, their, their tongues are filled with singing and they're happy. I'm going to tell you tonight, if we had a bunch of those Jews that came to Heritage Baptist Church tonight, they would have had a great song service with us. I mean, they would have just lifted the song service. They would have got happy about hearing about 10 people getting saved this week. And I don't think Sister Alita had any idea when she went to see these. She just went with a heart of mercy and desire of serving them. She's got such a great servant's heart. She went over there and she had no idea that God would use her to just help these people hear the gospel and lead them to Christ. And I'm looking for, I told her, hey, I want to meet them as soon as we can. I said, if we can get them on Friday night over here to the, to the West Contra Cost Extension Ministry, I want to get a chance to meet these people and, and minister to them. What a wonderful thing. But we notice here as we get to verse 4, something very interesting changes here. He speaks about in verses 1 to 3 that they're now, they, they once dreamed, but now they're living the dream. And they're filled with laughter, and their tongue is filled with singing. And the people on the outside are saying the Lord's done great things for them. And they on the inside are saying the Lord has done great things for us. But then they say something very interesting in verse 4. Because verse 4, they go from a testimony of praise to we see a, a time of prayer. Notice it, would you, would you please? In verse 1, he said, the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion. But verse 4, he changes the description. He changes it where he's praying, turn again our captivity. 
In verse 1, he talks about the captivity. In verse 4, he talks about our captivity. And he's talking about in the way of a prayer. You see, as these people made their way back, they were excited. They, they were excited there. This is Psalms of Ascent. That's why it was included in this psalm, Psalm 126 here. They made their way up that hill, and they started thinking about it, and they were singing and making joy in their hearts to God. And They saw the gates of the city, and they thought, what a wonderful thing to walk through those gates. And it just brought back a patriotic and a pilgrimage feeling inside their heart that they made their way back to the beloved city. They made their way in, and they saw the, what was left of the temple, and they saw, oh, we've got a work cut out for them. But they remembered, they said, well, we dreamed about coming here, and we can dream again about getting these walls restored and the gates fixed, and we can dream again about, about a temple being built and, and we can dream again about the glorious place of sacrifice and God working there. But that's, not, but that's not the only thing there because as they're looking there, it's not a big remnant of people that are coming in. It's the first realm of the first group of, in the captivity that's making their way back. And they made their way back in and they noticed something. They haven't been in the land for 70 years. And you have to remember that when they were taken captive, you read over in 2 Chronicles there, you read about how Nebuchadnezzar came in and they came in with their army, with the, the Babylonians there, and they ravaged the city. But they only ravaged the city. They burned the temple and they burned down the walls and the gates thereof and all of that was there for many years and Nehemiah talks about that later on after all the captivity of return and you'll, you'll notice here that as they go in they're noticing something that's, that's important to them because you remember as they go back to the city they still have got to live and they're looking around them and they're noticing the land they're noticing the land by which, by which they grew their crops they noticed the land had not been tilled and the land had not been cared for and the land had been uncultivated you see the soil around them was soil there was nothing that was planted there the soil all around that Judean landscape and the soil all around the city of Jerusalem soil where they, where they grew their grapes and Soil where they had their vines grow and walls broken down and soil, if you would, where they grew their crops and all those things. All of that was fallow ground. All of it was soil that was until nothing had been planted there for years. No food had been grown for years. And these people came there and they realized, listen, we're, nobody's going to lend money to us and nobody's going to give us food here. And they looked at the situation and they said, there's another captivity we came out of one captivity, but there's another captivity. We have a captivity here of a food shortage. We have a captivity here that we've got we've to till this ground. And listen, they realized there was a, a lot of hard work they had to do there. And they realized there was, that, that, that there was much they needed to be doing there. And they looked at the fields, and it was kind of like the fields of the slothful. In Proverbs 24, if you turn over there in verses 30 to 31, he describes the field of the slothful. He says, I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man void of understanding. And lo, it was all grown over with thorns and nettles had covered the face thereof and the stone wall there was broken down. It was all grown over with thorns and nettles. Land was a critical component as it is today for a lively economy. Fallow soil is soil that's not been turned over. Has not been made prepared for another time of sowing and reaping. It is inactive and uncultivated soil. It becomes clumpy and hardened. Nothing's been planted, but it needs to get planted. Fallow soil is that way because it needs to get turned over. And once it gets turned over, you've got to start planting again. And then after you've done your, your reaping, your harvesting, you've got to turn it over again and plant it again. You've got to keep the soil fertile. No wonder Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah, break up your fallow ground. 
So the hearts you have are uncultivated. Hearts you have have not been turned over. Nothing's growing out of it. Nothing's happening out of it. It's just fallow soil. It needs to be broken up. And I wonder this morning, if we've, got, if we've got this evening uncultivated hearts, there's nothing growing that's glorifying God. There needs to be something growing that gives honor to Jesus Christ. You saw the captivity of uncultivated, unplowed, inactive soil. He's praying. He says, God, turn again the captivity, our captivity. We're not out of captivity yet. Man, it's gonna, we may not have food for this next season. That's serious. It's going to take a while for grapes to grow. It's going to take a while for, for crops to grow. Man, it's another captivity. How, how, do you, how do you encourage the rest of the, the, the group that's, that, that hasn't come over? He says, how do you encourage them to come? And he, and he says here, Lord, turn again the captivity, our captivity, O oh Lord, as the streams in the south. And the streams in the south, he's thinking about those streams in the south as, as, as time goes along after winter is gone and spring is gone and the snow is melted and the streams are making way. Those streams start to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And by the time summer comes, those streams are all dried up. It's by the grace of God that when then the fall comes and winter comes and God sends rain because they're dependent upon rain. When the rains come, those streams in the south get filled again. And those streams in the south are a critical component to the irrigation of the land. And he said, Lord, turn again our captivity as you did, as you've done in days gone by. Remember those old days. Remember those days when you took the streams in the south and you sent the rain and those streams became an irrigation source to help our land. And we'd get the water up here to the hills and we get it up on the landscape and we get it over on the hillside. We get it over on the flatlands and we get it there to arrogant. He says, turn us again. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the stream of south. Listen, he was praying for rain for that fallow soil. He was praying for rain. Hey, listen today, don't ever get to the place we don't, where we stop praying for rain and praying for revival. We need to be in a constant state of revival all the time. But he wasn't just praying for rain. He was praying for the remnant. You see, there are some, there are some brothers and sisters that had not come over from Babylon yet. They came to the city and they said, oh, we remember the days the city was populated and the city was filled and the city had numerous group of people here and it just, we remembered their festivities and the different feasts they would have where people would come, the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Harvest and all those feasts they'd have where people would come and they would rejoice. But the city was, was, was still not completely filled. In fact, if anything, it may have only been a third, of, a third filled at most at that time and they're coming in, they said, turn again, our Captivity, Lord. Turn again our captivity. He wasn't just thinking about rain that they needed and ground that needed to be plowed again and, and fallow soil that needed to be broken up. He was thinking about, hey, I've got some brothers and sisters and we've got some people we love and some people that we need back here. And so he's praying again. He's praying, God, turn again our captivity. He says, We're not out of we're not out of bondage yet. We're not out of we're not out of we're not out of harm's way. We still are in a place right now where God we need you. Let me tell you tonight, you never get out to the place where you don't need to pray. You need to be praying all the time. You never get to the place where, where you can say, well, then there's no trouble, there's no problem. Listen, when you just get to that place, God's about ready to send some trouble, some problems to teach you to pray. We better pray like we're in a trial or God sends his trials to teach us how to pray. He makes a pressing request. He's pouring out his heart. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, like the streams in the south. But notice we see a passionate responsibility. They were back in the land. They were dreaming about coming back home. They, were worse, they dreamed about worshiping God in the temple again. Remember, the temple had not been built on that first group that came back. 
And if you get to verses 5 and 6, you look at it, if you don't understand the context here, you're, you think it's kind of just, it doesn't fit with the context. No, you have to understand it works, it works all the same. Because they're thinking about not just a city that's glorious, a city on the hill. They're not only thinking about the, the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles and when they thought about those times when, when they lit up those torches way up in the sky and, the, and it lit up the sky and someone from a, from a far away, they would look up there. And that's where Jesus got the idea of saying the city that's a, that city on a hill that's lit it up. He said that when they had the Feast of Tabernacles, you read that over in, in John chapter 8, the city was lit, lit up. That's how the backdrop to where Jesus said, I am the light of the world. They say, man, we need to get the lights back on here because, man, the lights have been out for a long time. And we need to get the walls built up. We need to get the gates fixed thereof. And we need to get that sheep gate thriving again where sheep are coming through. And we need that fish gate open where merchants can come in and out and all of those types of things. There. But more than that, they said, listen, we've got to break up the fallow ground. And we've got we've to pray down some rain. And we need this land irrigated. And we need, to, we need to see all that happen there. But listen, they saw the land. and what bothered them more than anything else. They had a new dream now. They lived the dream of coming out of captivity. They lived the dream of getting the, the shackles broken off. They lived the dream of having freedom once again. They lived the dream of being under the power of God. They lived the dream of worshiping God without being hindered and worshiping God without foreign powers coming upon them. But now they're going beyond this worship aspect and they're thinking, we've got a new captivity. We've got something under, we've got to take care of. We've got to cultivate this land. And they're thinking about the land. They're thinking about sowing. They're thinking about reaping. And so they said, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Listen, verses five and six, they're still living the dream. The dream was not just getting into the city. The dream was not just about the fact we've got our, we've got our, we've got our, we, we've obtained our pilgrimage and, and we've, uh, we, we, we are, we were at this place, we've arrived. They didn't believe, believe they had arrived. They realized that there was still more work to be done. And now the dream went to another level. They dreamed about cultivating. They dreamed about sowing. They dreamed about bearing precious seed. They dreamed, they dreamed about bringing their sheaves with them. And so tonight we see that if we have a dream that of doing something for God, and if we have a dream that God's church can be built. And we have a dream that God wants to do something through your life. And we have a dream that God can fill up our buildings. And we have a dream that God wants to start many Heritage Baptist churches. And we have a dream that God can send missionaries out of our church. And we have a dream that God can raise up an army of soul winners. And we have a dream that God can save souls. And we have a dream that God can do what Elita testified and what, what our, Anthony testified. That, that should be the norm and not the exception. We have a dream like that. Let me tell you tonight, we better be living that dream. The dream is not over. Listen, your dream wasn't. Listen, there was a dream we had 20 years ago, 22, 23 years ago for Heritage Baptist. Some of you, some of you folks here that are part of the founding membership, you got to go back and relive that dream there. There was that dream of getting that church started. There was that dream that we had rigorous prayer times and there was a lot of sacrifice and we didn't have a whole lot. And I still remember those days that we were just thankful for that meeting place we had and we were just thankful that someone set up the chairs. Now we get to set up our chairs. You say, oh, I remember those days. Listen, I like these days better. And why? Because it's our chairs. It's our chairs, amen? Not somebody else's chairs. We get to do it for Jesus, right? If you know these things happier, you ought to be thankful you get to set up some chairs. Y'all be thankful you have chairs to sit on, amen? I could take you to Laos and over to uh, 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 Sri Lanka, places like that. They don't sit on any chairs. If they have a rock, that's pretty good. They sit on a little broken chair, that's a pretty, pretty good thing there, okay? But you, you notice here that we, we, we went through that and just all the things. Hey, some of you don't even remember. Some of you folks who, who came, came after 2004, you didn't even know that we used to baptize an old broken jacuzzi out here. Where's Mark Fang? It was cold, wasn't it? Okay. Uh, Sandra, your mother said, I'm not getting baptized in there until it's warm weather. 
I remember talking to her mother over and over again. She says, I'm not getting baptized until it's warmer weather. We baptize in the rain. Remember that? We baptize in cold weather. I mean, it just, that, you know, those were, those were days. We were living the dream. And let me tell you today, the dream's not over. Dream's not over. There's still room to dream. Hey, Brother Reyes, you've been here for a long time, Brother Reyes. We ought to live the dream of this building out a church that's got a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Brother Eugene, you've come here, and you know, listen, you came here, you came out of a great church, and still a great church, and wonderful church, but you came with a dream of reaching people that are Spanish-speaking in this area. Some of you come here this church, and you've, you've come with the, with the desire of seeing God do something. Some of you just came because you're looking for a church. Listen, it's a dream to have a church that can preach the Word of God. It's a dream to have a church that's reaching people for Christ. It's a dream to know that you've got a church that cares for one another. It's a dream to know that you've got a church, in spite of where society goes, we're going the way of Jesus. We're not going the way of society, Amen. amen. It's a dream to see people saved. It's a dream to see our young people that were little kids getting saved in Chinatown Bible Club in Sunday school. Now they're getting married. You pray for Cindy Carlos next week. Are you sweating bullets, Brother Carlo? You will be. You will be. It's wonderful. Brother Reyes, if you don't mind, I'm going to share this story. But Brother Reyes, first thing he did when he came here years ago, he said, uh, and I didn't, I didn't just, the Lord put in my heart just now. Years ago, he came up to me, he said, Pastor, he says, he, he said, now, my wife doesn't speak a lot of English. And he says, uh, my English is okay. Actually, his English is pretty good there. But he said, you know, God led us to this church. You know, I appreciate his heart. He just said, all I want to do is serve God. But I've been with Brother Reyes on the side for all these years. And he'll say something like this as a pastor. Would you pray for my sons? Would you pray for my sons? Race Jr., Ellier. What a wonderful thing this past winter quarter that Ellier came back to church. How many of you know who Ellier is? Is Ellier here right now? He's not here right now, okay? Tell, tell him I missed him, okay? I want to answer prayer. He's in church now. He even goes so many. <laughs> He's in discipleship. Amen. Happy about the Lord. His fiance got saved here. His fiance's his fiance's sisters got saved about two, three weeks ago, I think on Mother's Day. I mean, what a wonderful thing. I mean, that's a dream. I mean, if you take somebody like Reyes, his dream was just God, God, if I can just get my sons in church. And these people were dreaming. Their dreaming wasn't over. They dreamed about getting back into the land, and they dreamed about, they dreamed about getting, getting back into the temple and getting where they were secure. But listen, the dreaming wasn't over. They were at this place where now they're thinking about they're sowing and reaping. They're dreaming about sowing and reaping, and they realize now that the work is about to be done, and now they've got to roll up their sleeves, and they've got to gird their, they've got to gird their, 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 their garment around their belt because they realize they've got some hard work they've got to do. And I want you to notice tonight, these people have accepted as they back back here. If you're going to live the dream, if you're going to have a dream, God's going to fulfill. You've got to understand that there is a responsibility associated with that dream. Dreams don't become reality unless you're passionate about that responsibility. Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you passionate about Jesus? Are you passionate about the local New Testament church? Are you passionate about missions? Listen, missions hasn't died. If it's died, it's because it's died in our hearts. Missions is alive in the heart of God. 
Jesus looked on the wilderness. He looked on the, the, the excuse me, not the wilderness. He, I'm, I'm very tired. He looked on the multitudes and he said, he said, listen, he said, they're like sheep without a shepherd. His heart was breaking for them. He looked over the city of Jerusalem and he knew what was going to happen. And he wept over the city. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Dreaming's not done. Dreaming's not done. And we look over here, they, had a, they knew that they were living a dream. The dream was getting fulfilled step by step as they came into the land. In verses 5 and 6, we see the passionate responsibility of the dream. Notice there's a grueling task. They that sow, go work a farm for one week. Sowing seed. We make it look easy, right? Guy's got a bag. <laughs> like a paper boy, right? It's not that easy. It's not that easy. Okay? Before you sow, you've got to break up the fallow ground. You've got to get the soil ready. And you better be careful because it's precious seed. You don't want that seed to fall on the wayside. Because it falls on wayside, careless people step on it. And if it's left exposed, the birds come down, Satan's birds come down, they snatch it out of people's hearts. And so there's a grueling task. They that sow and he that goeth forth and weepeth. Hey, working the land is hard work. Even God told them that in Genesis 3.19. He said, in the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat thy bread. Getting the land ready is a grueling task. Listen, there are three things you have to do. Would you listen tonight? There are three things you have to do if you're going to have a productive crop. You've got to break up the soil. You have to have beloved seed, and there's two kinds of seed. Write this down. There's seed for the harvest, and there's seed you have to hold back. Did you know that? There's seed for the harvest, and seed that you have to hold back. So you have the precious seed, you got to break up the soil, and then you'll notice there's the bearing of the sower. Remember, the people had been away from captivity a long time, and they're, they're looking over, and I can imagine these Jews are looking over the landscape, and they're looking at what used to be crops and rows and rows of crops, and they're looking over here, they're seeing the, the, the hillside where they've got, to, they've got to go up and replant some vines, and they've got to replant some seeds so the vines can grow, and they're envisioning in their mind what this is all going to unfold to, and they realize it's a lot of hard work there. It's a grueling task. They're thinking it's time to get back to work and produce a large harvesting of produce. And listen, what a message to the church. Listen, church, God has turned your captivity, my captivity. Aren't you glad tonight that you're saved? Man, there's no greater captivity than know that you've been bought, you've been bought out of the slave market of sin. You belong to Jesus Christ. Man, we, but, but if there's no growth in here, it gets fallow. Say amen. There's no growth in there. It gets fallow. It gets clumpy. It gets hardened. Clumpy leads to grumpy. Amen, you know? Clumpy Christians. What a great title. Amen? There's been no seed in there. Fallow ground, there's no seed in there. Fallow ground, nothing's grown in there for a long time. It missed its season. 
That's what it is. It missed its season. Somebody didn't care for the ground. They didn't do it. So it's, so it's, grueling. it's a grueling task. It's hard work. They get involved in bearing precious seed. So when he's not easy, so when he's hard work. You get rejection. You get a lot of cynical remarks. And some of us, we, our, our, our veneer, our, our exterior is so thin. We get offended easily. Hey, great peace of they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. We get offended so easily. We get worried. We think they're going to hurt me. Listen, the Bible tells us that no weapon that is formed shall prosper against thee. psalmist we need to come to reality if we don't keep our hearts cultivated if we're not sowing precious seed there's no new life and these people had a dream they said man somebody's got to bear the precious seed and somebody's got to do the sowing there and so they said we know it's hard work and we know it's uphill work by the way i like the fact that it was uphill work they said we're going to do it because it's our dream we see the grueling task but you notice the godly tears Oh, they said, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing. We all know this. I said this earlier. We know that irrigation is needed for the seed to bring forth a healthy crop. What does he mean, sowing in tears and reaping? He that goeth forth and weepeth. A Christian man went down to the northern part of Africa to do a study of farmers and harvesting. He spent over a year there studying farming and harvesting. And he watched them as they cultivated the soil and broke up the soil and broke up the fallow ground and got it ready and they, 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 set, their, they set their fields right and they watched the sowers. He was sowing seed and sowing very carefully. It was precious seed. He was very careful. Sometimes we think about we're just sowing. He's not throwing it like that. It's called precious seed because life is in that seed. By the way, that's why the Bible's called, the word of God is called precious seed. There's life in it. You can't be around God's word long without getting life inside of you. Amen. They're bearing the seed. But the farmer, the farmer, remember, these are all family farms. They're not commercial farms. The farmer would always keep back, he would hold back a bag of seed. He didn't sow all of it. He'd always hold back a bag of seed. And they'd sow the seed, and the ground was broken up, and they'd sow the seed, and the irrigation would come, and crops would start to grow. Oh, what a wonderful thing is they watch something shoot out of the ground and they watch the vine start to make its way over the wall and they watch that and then the time came when there was reaping and they were rejoicing and they had a great harvest and they bring the harvest in and they filled up their barn house with all those type of things and, and they, they, that was good and they had food in abundance and they planned ahead and whatever exit, they planned how much food they would have to have, they needed to have to get them through that winter into the next spring when they would have to start sowing again and, and they thought very carefully, this is good for us and maybe we have a little extra we could take a little extra and take it to the marketplace and sell it and we could use that extra money to reinvest in our in our farm and buy some new equipment and things of that nature maybe hire some help maybe we can build some bigger barns they held that back but they always remembered that there was this bag of seed and many of those families, they would live in a one-room home, and in that one-room home, they'd have a kind of a, a hook in the door and, or peg in the door, nail in the door, and they would hang that bag of seed on that, on that hook. 
And daddy would get around the table there with his family and he said, listen, children, listen, mama, don't touch that bag. Don't touch that bag. Our very existence, our future is dependent upon that bag. They said, Daddy, why do we need to touch a bag? We've got plenty of food here. We've got crops for morning, and we've got crops for lunch. They had breakfast and lunch and dinner, and they'd get through the first month and second month and third month. They'd get through about three months where they had abundance of food, and they had more than enough, and the, and the, and the animals were well fed, and everything was good. And as winter came, they'd done all those things. They had food, but as winter was starting to get on, they would realize that they were seeing a reduction of their food. They realized we've got to make this last a little bit longer. And they started realizing we, if we're going to make this last, we're going to get to the next season of farming. We've got, to, we've got to ration a little bit. They went from three meals down to two meals. They went from two meals down to one meal. And they went from one meal a day to one meal every other day. And from one meal every other day, they got down to one meal a week. And they got down to one meal a week. They got down to say these weeks before they'd start sowing where they basically skip food. And the little children with their bellies bloated and they, rem they, remembered those, they remembered eating well. They remembered being full. They remembered going to bed with contentment. Now they were waking up and they were dreaming, oh, I wish I could have those days again, Daddy. I wish I could have those days where I could be filled with food again. And the children would look up and say, Daddy, we've got some seed in that bag. And Daddy said, don't touch that bag. Don't touch that bag. Don't touch that bag. Say, Daddy, we've got seed in the... Dad, you're being cruel, Dad. You're being mean. We've got, we take that seed and plant it. There's, a, there's rain coming. We plant it. We, we can have something to get us through the next month. He says, don't touch that seed. Don't touch that seed. Don't touch that seed. And when the right season came, the time for sowing seed again, the father would take the bag off the hook and he'd open up the bag. He'd look inside there. And he'd look at the bag of seed, and he'd look at his children, and he'd look at them in their eyes, and tears would come to their eyes, and their bloated bellies, and he'd look at his wife, who's emaciated because she hasn't eaten well, and he tried to do the best good. He looked at himself and said, man, I am not doing very well either. And the temptation was there for many days. If I just could plant it, I could take care of my family. We thought, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. The season came when it was time for them to go farming again. He took that seed, and he said, as the ground was prepared, and he got that ground ready, he broke up the fallow ground, and got it ready for seeding, got it ready for planting. He started bearing precious seed once again. You see, they had to hold back the seed in order for them to have food for the next term. And they would do that every time. And so we look at these verses. That's what he has in mind there. The, far, the, farmer, the, the writer of the Psalms realized that. He says, listen, this is precious seed. It's life-giving seed. They that sow in tears. And that man, as he's sowing the seed, tears are coming down his eyes. He's weeping and he's crying. He's thinking, oh, my children are suffering. And my wife is emaciated. And my family is suffering. We've got food I could give them, but I can't, get, I can't do this. I can't give them that food right now. That we've got to make the most of what we have. And he's, he's just tearing up on the inside. And he's, he's broken up on the inside. And tears coming down his face because he's weeping, crying about what he could do. That's the meaning behind this. May the sow in tears shall reap in joy, and he that goeth forth and weepeth. As he's going forth, he's weeping. This man, perhaps himself, he's talking about himself. He's talking about this new captivity that, that somebody's got to do something for the lamb, and somebody's got to do some sowing. So he's thinking about the fact that he's got to sow this seed, and he's, got to, he's going to have to wait it out, and he's going to look at his children, look at his wife, and his heart's going to break because he knows their souls need to be fed. Hey, listen, this man had an abundance of tears. Hey, can I tell you something tonight? Tears are what we need if we're going to win souls and tears are what we're going to need for the church to go on and tears are what we're going to need in our praying and tears are what we're going to need for God to take us to somewhere we never imagined going before. Tears are the missing component in soul winning. We become so mechanical 
and routine and hardened when it comes to shedding real tears for the lost. Jesus wept over sinners. Paul wept over sinners. He said in Acts 20, 31, Therefore watch, remember, by the space of three years, I, I, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Tears represent brokenness. I think about the tears of the little baby Moses. He was in that little ark. Tears of the little baby looking over the face of Pharaoh's daughter. She claimed that baby for herself. I think of the tears of Hannah as she cried and prayed for a son. God gave her a Samuel. I think about the tears of Esther as a queen, realizing the king, the king has not issued for the last 30 days an edict for anyone to come to his presence. If I go there, he might, I might die. And she fasted for three days. She started thinking about her people, and she got the right perspective. And she says, if I perish, I perish. I think of the tears of Hezekiah when Isaiah came and told him, you're going to die. He, says, he said, you better set your house in order. You're going to die. He turned, he was so weak, he was so, he was so languishing, weak at 39 years of age, he turned his face again to the wall and he said, Lord, remember me. And God saw the tears of Hezekiah and while Isaiah was walking out of that place to the house of the king, God said, Isaiah, why don't you go back around in there? He turned him right back around. He said, I got a new message I want to give you. Hey, aren't you glad for the new messages of God? Amen. The Bible principle is that brokenness always precedes blessing. Evangelist was conducting, and I know the evangelist. Evangelist was conducting a revival in the state of Florida. He went to this church where he knew the pastor, and he was preaching a great revival service. They had great results that night. God met all over that church. The preacher said, hey, hey, he said, brother, he said, brother Hill, he said, uh, there's a lady in our church. She's invited us over after church tonight. She says she made some refreshments, and she made some sweet tea and things like that. And she says, well, do you, do you mind if we go over there for a little bit, just fellowship with her? She's a sweet lady with a great gift of hospitality. She says, yeah, the preacher, whatever you want to do. The evangelist, the preacher, went over to the lady's house, and they sat at the kitchen table, very modest, humble lady. Things were all set on the table already, and they sat down there, and the preacher started to notice. He looked at her eyes. Her eyes, her eyes were very dark and very cold. Her eyes did not move. He just wanted to see, was she blind? And he moved his head this way, but she didn't follow him. And he moved his head this way, she didn't follow him. And he purposely got up and walked around the table, she didn't follow him. But she, but she turned her head when she heard his voice, but she couldn't see his body. He started to realize, he said, I think this lady's blind. How does she do all this? After some time, they'd been fellowshipping. The lady just abruptly says, Brother Hill, I, I think you've been looking at me, haven't you? And he was a little, little embarrassed. She said, yeah. He says, can I tell you why I'm blind? He says, ma'am, I don't know why you're blind, but if you feel led to, you can share with me. Listen to this. She said, preacher, a number of years ago, the tear ducts in my eyes dried up. It didn't matter what the life event was. I couldn't get any tears to come out. I couldn't cry. No matter how broken my heart was, how crushed my spirit might have been, I simply could not cry. And she said this, as a result of those dry eyes, I eventually lost my sight. Brother Hill, I'm blind because I cannot shed tears. Can I say to you something tonight? Listen to me this evening. We're blind to sinners getting saved. We're blind to the need of the gospel. 
We're blind to the need on the mission field because our teardrops have gone dry. Our teardrops have gone dry. I talked about William Booth this morning. And I'm not advocating the Salvation Army, but when it began, it was a great soul-winning organization. It's not anywhere near what it was when William Booth founded it. If you saw William Booth, he was not the picture of success. He was a very scrawny, very disorganized-looking man, but a great zeal for God. He'd been away in another country there in Europe, campaigning for the Lord, doing God's work, trying to win souls, going like he did in the streets of London. He just went to places where were hard-to-reach people in the, the slum areas, and we'd call them homeless people and things like just criminals and people, just hard lives. And the organization that was there in London that he left behind, the leadership, they realized they had some cold spots and people were not getting saved like they were when William Booth was there and they, things were not happening. And so they telegraphed him. They said, Mr. Booth, they said, hey, they said, hey we're, we're hitting some dry spots. We, you've been gone for these number of weeks here. Nothing's happened. And he replied back two words. He said, try tears. Try tears. You see, this evening, a pastor's responsibility is a grueling task. It's hard work. And a pastor's responsibility involves godly tears. Notice again, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy, and he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing. He's telling us as sow winners, if we want to see the results God wants us to have, we want to reap in joy, we've got to sow in tears. If we want to come with rejoicing, we've got to go forth and weep. But notice tonight as we close, notice we just don't see those godly tears, but we see a glorious turnout. Look again at verses 5 and 6. He tells us, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. Listen, I like what I see here. These people are are living the dream. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. He talks about a glorious turnout, but he's also telling them it's a guaranteed turnout. He says when we go forth and when we weep and we've got the precious seed of God's word, he says he doubtless, he says you shall doubtless come back with rejoicing. You'll doubtless come back with joy in your heart and happiness in your soul. You shall doubtless come back with results. You won't come back empty. You'll come back with a harvesting of people. And listen, he didn't promise just a sheaf. He promised sheaves. He promised an abundance. He says, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. Listen, they were living the dream. It took hard work. It required lots of sleep. It required many tears. It required much patience. God gave them a glorious turnout. God blessed them. They had precious seed. Uh, they were reaping in joy. They were bringing their sheaves with them. God was doing it. Hey, listen, that, that's the secret to soul winning. That's the secret to building the church. We've got to lift the dream. We've got to sow some tears. We've got to break up some fallow ground. We've got to take the precious seed and go forth and weep over and over again. And listen, God promises souls will be saved and people added to the church and new disciples being discipled and more soul winners being involved and more AGGs being started and extension ministries being started and churches being started. Not just the sheep, but sheep. Oh, what a wonderful thing if all of us as God's people could take on the, the mindset and the heart of being a harvester for Jesus Christ, a harvester with a heart for God, then I'm going to cultivate my heart and then start cultivating the soil of where God has planted us. And we're going to start planting that precious seed and we're going to sow some tears and we're going to have a list of unsaved people that God could, is, will bring across our pathway that we're going to pray for and we're going to seek after and pray that God will save their soul. And he promises us here, they shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves it's a passion responsibility. Are you living the dream? You living the dream? 
The dream began when you got saved. The dream continued when you became a church member. The dream got, became even more exciting when you led your first soul to Christ. And maybe we're like the psalmist in verse 4. Turn again our captivity, Lord, as the streams in the south. Pray for rain. But pray for remnant that still need to hear the gospel. Look around you. We've got about 150 seats right now that need to be filled. Go walk to the B.C. with me tonight. When I'm on the church grounds, I walk the BC at least twice, and I walk the main building at least twice. I pray for seats to be filled. I pray for souls to be saved. There's a time we had more people, not enough classrooms. We've got a new dream. We've got a lot of classrooms, a lot of space. We need to compel them to come in that his house may be filled. Amen? Let's live the dream tonight. Not my dream. His dream. His dream. Jesus has already written his dream for his church. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, speaking of himself, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. How's Jesus building his church? Through you and me. 2 Thessalonians 2.17, he says, 2.15, Stand therefore fast, and hold fast the traditions which you receive. You don't need new ideas. You need fresh oil. You don't need new curriculum. You need to just get back in the Bible. You don't need a new idea. You need new time in the Word of God. New time praying down God's power. We need new fasting and praying. You know what we need tonight? We just need to be new. Break up the fallow ground. Pray that He turn again the streams in the south. Sow in tears. And God says we'll reap in joy. And we'll bring forth our sheaves.